Here's the sad truth about happiness. We adapt. We adapt fast. You get a raise and you'll feel great for a bit and then the feeling passes. You fall in love and you feel great, but eventually the feeling passes. You go on a run and you feel great and then the feeling passes. We're told that happiness is cumulative. The more we have, the happier we are. But it feels like the opposite is true. Happiness isn't cumulative. It fluctuates. You can increase it, but only for a while. In today's episode, you'll learn why. You'll hear from happiness expert Casey Holmes about the science behind happiness, why feelings of happiness are fleeting, and tips for genuinely living a happier life. All of that coming up, but first, here's another podcast I'd recommend. Success Story, hosted by Scott D. Clary, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Success Story features Q&A sessions with successful business leaders, keynote presentations, and conversations on sales, marketing, business, startups, and entrepreneurship. Back in December last year, Scott did an episode with marketing legend Seth Godin on how to hire well, which I think is well worth tuning into. So listen to Success Story wherever you get your podcasts. So this phenomenon of happiness peaking and then quickly going back to the previous level, well, there's a name behind it. It's called hedonic adaptation. To walk me through it, I'll hand over to Professor Cassie Holmes. She's professor at UCLA's Anderson School of Management, where she teaches a course called Applying the Science of Happiness to Life. Her best-selling book, Happier Hour, walks through her seminal research on happiness, and she's here today to talk me through hedonic adaptation. Here she is explaining it. So hedonic adaptation is our psychological propensity to get used to things over time. So when you do the same thing again and again, you do the same thing over a long period of time, or you're with the same person over a long period of time, um, that thing or that person starts to have less of an intense effect on you. That is, we get used to things over time. We are adapting. As Cassie says, hedonic adaptation affects all walks of life, including love. In her book, she shared a study which analyzes the happiness of hundreds of individuals over a lifetime. This allowed the researchers to see what happens to happiness before and after someone gets married. The data revealed a mountain-shaped pattern that peaked on one's wedding day. The data showed an incline in happiness in the two years leading to the big day, and afterwards a steady decline in happiness, right back down to the baseline level of happiness. Within two years, individuals went from this peak level of happiness back down to a baseline, the baseline that they had in the two years before their wedding day. Now, it's good that we adapt in the circumstances um, when they're negative circumstances, as in like when we're subjected to negative circumstances, it's a really good thing that we adapt because it allows us to be resilient. It makes us tolerant. Um, However, the bad thing is that we also adapt to the good stuff in life such that we stop noticing it as much. It stops having that same emotional impact on us. I mean, you see this sort of show up in lots of little as well as big ways. So a little way, just think about like how delicious that first bite of ice cream tastes 
And then, you know, the third still tastes good. The 10th, less good. And then by the 15th, you're starting to feel pretty ill, right? But also like that's a little example. But if you think of like even a bigger example, like think of the very first time your partner said, I love you, right? It's like the emotional impact of that is so amazing and wonderful. It's like fireworks in your mind and in your heart. Yet years into it, those words, I love you, get shortened to love you as you're hanging up the phone or walking out the door, such that you almost don't even hear those words. So it's something as profound as the declaration of love, like from or to the love of your life, is something that you don't even notice, don't even hear, and it doesn't affect you. That shows the power of hedonic adaptation. It's not just love that we adapt to, it's everything. Take winning the lottery, surely one of the best experiences a person can go through. You win the lottery and suddenly you can clear off your debt, you can buy a new house, you can donate to a charity you love. And yet research cited in Cassie's book found that the average lottery winner sees their happiness return to baseline levels within four years of winning. Four years and you adapt to something as life-changing as winning the lottery. Now, this is something that's really important to be aware of because it undermines our happiness because there's so much potential joy and happiness and satisfaction that is right there in the time that we're already spending in our daily lives. Um, In those ordinary experiences, I've actually, in my work, have shown that when people recognize their time is limited, which happens naturally as people age, um, or can be sort of prompted as people are led to recognize, and in fact, our lives are finite. When people feel like their time is limited, ordinary experiences produce as much happiness as extraordinary experiences. This is an important point. There is a way around hedonic adaptation, and paradoxically, it's not to want more, but to cherish what you already have. In her book, Cassie shares an experiment with college seniors that showed this effect at work. Six weeks before the students graduated, the students were instructed to write about their college experience. Here's the twist. Some were told to write about how much time they had left until they graduate, but others were told to write about how little time they had left, that their graduation was fast approaching and that time was scarce. A couple of weeks later, these two sets of students reported their happiness. Here's what's interesting. Those who had been led to perceive their remaining college life as limited were happier. Those who thought about how little time was left enjoyed that time more. They were happier because they'd made the most of that time. They'd spent it reveling in their favourite spots, hanging out with their closest friends, visiting these cherished campus locations that they knew they wouldn't see again. The other group, who were told to think about how much time they had left, didn't do the same activities and weren't as happy because of it. This is one strategy to overcoming hedonic adaptation. Note how time is scarce, rather than assuming it is limitless. But that's not all. Cassie shared another trick with me. She said adding novelty and variety to your life is a great way to boost happiness and overcome hedonic adaptation. Increasing variety among our experiences um, keeps us engaged and helps offset hedonic adaptation. 
Um, we showed this in work uh, with Jordan Epkin, where we looked at the variety in the activities um, that we do in our days and across our weeks. And we found that across the week, doing a greater variety of activities. But interestingly, it doesn't actually even have to be true variety, but even focusing on the differences between the activities and the things that you do highlights that there is, in fact, variation. And with that variation, it keeps you interested and engaged and increases satisfaction. I will say that there's a caveat because actually when we try to do too many of too many different and a variety of things within a small amount of time, it actually has the opposite effect because it feels like you're sort of frantically shifting from activity to activity um, and you don't feel like you're ever actually engaging and truly engaging and completing an activity and that can actually um, lead to dissatisfaction. But as you're thinking across the days of your life and across your weeks, it's really important to infuse variety and novelty. There's uh, interesting work uh, which looks at uh, romantic relationships. And what they found is that um, partners who do more novel experiences together report greater rela relationship satisfaction and um, show greater relationship longevity. I've actually shared this study before on the show. This is a study where couples were tied together by their ankles with Velcro. They performed a series of novel but physical challenges, so a pretty unique experience for them that they won't have experienced before. Other couples in the study performed a much duller task, slowly rolling a ball back and forth while stationed on opposite sides of a room. Afterwards, the Velcroed couples reported greater relationship satisfaction and scored higher on the romantic love symptom checklist, which includes symptoms of love such as experiencing tingling when thinking of the person you love. Novelty makes your relationship stronger and happier. And Cassie shared a good tip on how to add novelty to your dates. If you are, for instance, going on a weekly date with your partner, do a variety of activities. So um, my husband and I um, in, in our um, <laughs> relationship, uh, we have a weekly date and we had wandering Wednesdays. This was before we had kids where every Wednesday we would go out. So there was no variety there, but the variety came in that we would always have to do something new. So go to a different restaurant, go to a show, something that we hadn't done before. And what that does is that it makes you continue to pay attention. Also, taking a break from these things that you enjoy. Um, there was an interesting study by Jordi Quadbach and his colleagues where they looked at among chocolate eaters, people who like eating chocolate. And um, among some of them, they randomly assigned that they would have to take a break and not eat chocolate for a week. And what they found was that although, you know, there was no difference in the enjoyment of the chocolate before um, the week break between these two groups, a week later when they came back and that chocolate, first chocolate that was eaten after the week, those who had taken a break and not eaten, eaten a chocolate for the week enjoyed the chocolate more. They said it tasted better. They savored it more. And so another option is not only increasing variety, among our experiences that we enjoy, but sometimes taking a break from those things that we enjoy so that when we re-engage and we start anew, it really does feel like starting anew. 
It's not just chocolate, by the way. All of your food can taste better if you take a break, or even if you eat your food in a novel way. One experiment from Cassie's book showed that participants instructed to eat their popcorn using chopsticks instead of using their fingers, as usual, enjoyed the popcorn more than those who ate as usual. I've been testing this out. I've been eating more of my meals with chopsticks, even meals that traditionally aren't meant to be eaten with chopsticks. And I look pretty weird, but I think it works. It definitely forces me to pay attention to what I'm eating. Cassie's study with Jordan Etkin showed that chopsticks weren't actually necessary, though. Any type of novelty and variety would boost happiness. In their study, Cassie and Jordan told participants how to spend their day. They instructed half of the participants to spend their day doing many different and new things, and they instructed the other half to spend their day doing familiar and similar things. You won't be surprised at the result. By the end of the day, those who had done a variety of new activities were happier and more satisfied. Novel activities and cherishing what you have is a great way to beat hedonic adaptation. But of course, that is not all. After the break, Cassie shares three more tips to boost your happiness. All of that after a quick 60-second break. As many of you know, I have just quit my job to go full-time on Nudge. But prior to that, I spent my career working in startups. And startups aren't easy. It's long hours, small teams, tiny budgets. It makes marketing hard work. But it doesn't have to be. HubSpot for startups can help grow your business without growing your stress. Their all-in-one platform connects your sales, marketing and support all together. So you can increase your leads, you can fast-track your deals, smooth out support and join a platform that more than 190,000 top brands trust. HubSpot also offer discounts for startups on their top-rated customer platform and not the type of discounts that barely make a dent. So if you're ready to boost your marketing without breaking the bank, look no further than HubSpot for startups. To see how much you can save, visit hubspot.com startups. Okay, back to the show. We have been talking through tips to boost your happiness. Many of them surprised me, but this tip didn't. Cassie says a great way to boost your happiness is plain and simple exercise. Here's why. When I ask people uh, what they wish they had time to do but don't, um, there's a few activities that come up very often. Exercise is a frequent one. So, so often when we feel like we are time poor and we don't have time, um, one of the first things that we neglect is exercise. Um, but this is bad um, because research has shown that exercise and not extreme exercise, it's actually like even moderate exercise, but uh, daily has a significant influence on not just our health, but on our mood. Um, when people exercise repeatedly, it is an effective way to offset anxiety. It's been shown to reduce depression and it makes us happier. It, it boosts mood. What's interesting is that it also increases self-esteem. And so when I talked about the role of self-efficacy, it's like, even though when we feel like we don't have time, we don't exercise, when you do make the time to exercise, when you're exercising, it increases that sense of self-efficacy. You're like, oh my gosh, I did it and I can do all of it. Um, and with that 
it very well could increase a sense of time affluence. I think you get two benefits from exercise. Not only do you get the physiological benefits of a good workout, but for many forms of exercising, like running and walking and hiking, you also get a huge benefit from being outside. There's an incredible British study that looked at this. Using a smartphone app, the researchers were able to ask 20,000 Brits at different points of the day how happy they were. Because the research was conducted with an app, the researchers could also pinpoint their location. They could see whether the participant was inside or outside, or even if they were in their cars. At random points, participants would receive this ping through the smartphone app, asking them, how happy are you feeling at this moment, and what are you doing? The results from over a million responses showed a clear trend. People are happier outdoors. Those who are outside just always seem to report feeling more happy. And furthermore, this boost in happiness doesn't just depend on the weather. People are happier when it's sunny, but it can be cloudy or rainy, and people still said they were happier outside. And it doesn't actually matter what activity you're doing. Exercise did bring one of the biggest increases in happiness, but just idly being outside, perhaps during the gardening, also brought a lot of happiness as well. And amazingly, the environment of where you were outside wasn't a vital factor either. People are happier in nature, but just being outside in a built-up urban area also brought happiness too. It's kind of simple. Stepping outdoors seems to boost happiness. Yet on average, Brits spend approximately 85% of their day indoors. Now, part of the problem here is that people feel they don't have time to go outside or time to exercise. We feel we don't have time for lots of things. Here's what Cassie's research found on this subject. People wish they had time to read for pleasure. People wish they had time to slow down. They feel like they neglect um, their relationships and um, their hobbies and interests. So how do people make more time for these sorts of activities? I asked Cassie. In trying to identify, like, what are those activities that are worthwhile um, versus those that are a waste, namely those activities that give you a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment and happiness and enjoyment um, versus those that you might spend time on, but perhaps are not necessary or that lead to um, unhappiness or dissatisfaction. Um, The way researchers look to identify Um, these various activities is through time tracking. So over the course of people's days, identifying what activity are they doing as well as how they're feeling during that activity. But that's sort of picking up on averages. And what I suggest is that people track their own time. Um, So over the course of a week, writing down for each half hour increment what you're doing, um, as well as coming out of that on a 10-point scale, how do you feel? how satisfied, how happy, um, how fulfilled. And while sort of tedious to track your time, this is really helpful because at the end of the week, you have this fantastic personalized data set that you can look across your activities and see what are those activities that do in fact bring you satisfaction and joy? What are those activities that are emotionally draining or depleting or negative? Um, as well as just how much time you spend across these various activities. Cassie's book shares numerous examples of people who have done this time-tracking tasks. She's got a pretty comprehensive list of the activities that bring the least happiness. I asked her what they were. Now, on average, looking at those activities that tend to be associated with the, or 
associated and contribute to the least happiness um, include commuting, work, and housework. So our household chores are activities that are not fun. We do not find satisfaction in them nor fulfillment, but they are things that have to get done. So there's a couple of things, strategies that you can employ. One is outsourcing. You can lessen the amount of time you spend on these activities that you don't enjoy. Research by Ashley Willens and her colleagues looked at the effect of outsourcing on happiness. And what they found is that people actually don't do a lot of outsourcing, even when they have the funds available to them. However, those that do spend money um, on these time-saving services um, report greater satisfaction and happiness. So I'm not sure if I love this tip, that we should outsource our chores, partly because 99% of us won't have the funds to do something like this. But it is at least interesting to hear that those with the funds still put this off. They underestimate how important it is to save time. However, there's a catch. Even if you spend all the money in the world to save time, that time you save won't be enjoyable if you're absent during the time. If you outsource your chores to a cleaner and a nanny, but still answer work emails during dinner with your family, you won't be any happier. If you get a babysitter, but spend your date night looking at your phone, you won't be any happier. Being absent during these moments will worsen your happiness. And there are studies to prove it. As you said, even if we've like sort of gotten over the barrier that we are spending time on an activity that offers joy, if we are distracted and not paying attention during that activity, then we miss out on the potential happiness from it. And we're distracted a whole lot of the time. So research by uh, Dan Gilbert and Matt Killingsworth, they looked at, they had this study where they would sort of bling people over the course of their day and ask, what are you doing right now? And what are you thinking about right now? Are you thinking about what you're doing? Or are you thinking about something else? As well as how happy are you? And what they found was that we are distracted a whole lot of the time, nearly half of the time, that is 47% of the time, we are not thinking about what we are currently doing. And this is bad <laughs> because when they looked at the relationship with happiness, we are also less happy when we are distracted. We are less happy when our mind is wandering to something else. And our tendency to be distracted is not dependent on the activity itself. So it's like, even when you're doing this wonderful activity that can offer happiness, um, that even during those moments, our minds are, have wandered somewhere else and we're missing out. So we have to figure out how do we sort of minimize the likelihood that we are distracted. A significant source of distraction are our uh, mobile phones, our cell phones, um, and our Smartphones are so wonderful because they allow us to do so much, right? They are so effective and efficient and convenient. They like fit in our pocket and are always with us and allow us to always be doing other things, including on social media, watching all the other cool things that other people are doing. But it's a source of distraction. And so, and there's actually work by um, Liz Dunn and her colleagues where they found um, in, in an experiment, they had friends dining together and they randomly assigned some to put their cell phones away 
out of sight in their bags so they couldn't see them. Um, the others kept their phones on the table, which is notably what we typically do. And what they found was that those who had their cell phones put away out of sight enjoyed the dining experience more because they were more engaged. Those who had their cell phones on the table enjoyed their dining experience less because they were more distracted. That really is a top tip to boost happiness. During moments where you want to be present, put your phone out of sight. Don't leave it on the dinner table. Don't keep it in your pocket during a walk. As the research from Killingsworth and Gilbert found, 47% of the time we are distracted and this harms happiness. Avoid this by keeping your phone out of sight. To finish up today, I wanted to share an important point. Obviously, these rules aren't true for all of us. Many of us will find happiness in different ways and ways counter to the things I've suggested today. And the age you are can dramatically change what brings you joy. It might sound obvious, but the things that bring you happiness today won't be the things that bring you happiness in 10 or 20 years' time. Here's why. In our work, we have found that both how we experience happiness as well as the types of experiences that contribute to greater happiness shift over the course of our lives. So for instance, work with Sepp Kamvar and Jennifer Ocker, we looked at actually expressions of happiness among the blogosphere. So millions of people saying, I feel or I'm feeling happy. Who is saying it and what are they actually experiencing? And what we found is this interesting shift that among younger people, they were more likely to express and to feel what we call excited happiness. That is this high energy, high intensity, high arousal, loud, exciting happiness. You see that as people get older, they're more likely to express and experience a calm, contented happiness. And this is really interesting because it does point to the fact that, you know, when your 20-something self is looking at the, you know, those 40-year-olds and they're like, oh, you know, kill me if I'm ever that person that on a Friday night is like at home on the couch. Yet that 40-year-old, that is, it's not that their life has become boring and unhappy. In fact, it's because that relaxation on the couch with a glass of wine with your partner is like divine. So again, this might sound obvious. Of course, older people get happiness from different things. But there's an important point here. Sometimes we put off activities that we might do today and instead tell ourselves we'll do them later in life. I'd always assumed I'd spend my retirement traveling to all the places I wanted to visit, doing things like taking the train from London to Singapore or hiking the Inca Trail or climbing Kilimanjaro. But I should be really hesitant about putting these activities off for much later in my life because Cassie's studies suggest that by the time I'm retired, I might just get less enjoyment from these things. To enjoy them properly, I might need to be younger. Or at least I might get enjoyment from more mundane activities that I won't feel the need to do these more extreme activities. Here's why. We've also found that the experiences that make us happy shift with age. So work with Amit Bhattacharji, we looked at the happiness experience from ordinary versus extraordinary experiences. And we found that among young people, they tend to experience greater happiness from the extraordinary. So that incredible concert Um, climbing Machu Picchu, 
Um, whereas as people get older, they start to experience increasing happiness from the ordinary moments, such that among older people, um, they experience as much happiness from that simple moment shared with a loved one or noticing the beautiful view um, as they do from these um, extraordinary experiences. Okay, so we're getting towards the end of my chat with Cassie. To finish up, I asked one final question. Cassie knows happiness more than anyone I've met. So I asked her, what's the one tip she'd give me to increase my happiness? I would suggest of actually taking a um, broader view of time and thinking about time in terms of years and life overall, because what that does is it clarifies what really matters to you, what is ultimately important. And with that clarity of those values and that higher sense of purpose um, and what really matters to you, that should inform how you spend your hours. So even though my book is called Happier Hour, um, because that's where decisions are made, it's really informed by and uh, influences the satisfaction you feel with, about life overall. Take a broad view of your life. That is Cassie's final tip. And I wasn't surprised to hear it because as we heard right back at the start of the show, we appreciate life more when we realize time is scarce and taking a broad view helps reveal that. All right, let's summarize. Today we have covered happiness tips, not run-of-the-mill, wishy-washy advice that you can get from any old guru. This is real, hard, scientific happiness advice from a world-leading expert. We heard how hedonic adaptation will naturally numb life's joys, but also life's lows over time. But novelty can help you get around this. By doing novel, new activities, you will boost your happiness as does exercise and getting outside, two core parts of a happy life. We also heard how outsourcing chores to make more time can help, although I don't think this is possible for most of us. However, making free time is pointless if we spend that time distracted, and we are distracted 47% of the time. So put your phone away, not just on the table or in your pocket, but actually somewhere else, and you'll be less distracted and you'll be happier. That is all for today, folks. I really hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did enjoy today's show, then I think you will love Happier Hour. That is Cassie's book, and I think it's a must-read. It's easy to understand, yet incredibly informative. If you're looking for tips to live a happier life, that is the book to check out. Don't forget to subscribe to my newsletter for exclusive content, including more of Cassie's tips for living a happier life. You can sign up at nudgepodcast.com and click newsletter in the menu, and you'll get a tip every single week. Thank you so much for listening. You can, as always, find me on Twitter. My name is Phil Agnew and my handle is P underscore Agnew. That's A-G-N-E-W. Feel free to send me a message or a tweet. I'd love to hear from you. Okay, thanks again for listening to this episode of Nudge. <laughs>